Hey, you guys are going to want to be here next week. I know it's the weekend after Thanksgiving. When you're here, you'll know what I mean. You just Next weekend, the talk is about the Virgin Mary, and the title of the talk is Surprise, I Choose You. And, but I'm just telling you, you're not going to want to miss that next week, so just file that away. Our series is called Surprise, and Christmas is a time for surprises. In fact, those surprises just sort of baked into our season, aren't they? I mean, there's the lighting of the Christmas tree. Some families do it as a tradition. You know, you decorate the house and you put up the Christmas tree and then everybody gathers around. Somebody throws a switch. Surprise, the lights are on. And that happens in little communities here in Kansas. Even happens up in Washington, D.C. There's the lighting of the Christmas tree. That's a surprise. Um, And then, of course, uh, the wrapping of presents. That's about surprise, isn't it? There's a reason why we buy the presents and we cover them up in wrapping paper. We want to see that surprise on the kid's face when they open the gifts. You know, they tear off the paper and the tape and the ribbon. We want that look of surprise. And those of you guys who bought your lady uh, your Christmas gift, you hope that that's a good look of surprise, right? Yeah, surprise. Um, I'm not a real emotional person, but I'll tell you the one that gets me every year. And that's when, you know, there's a service person who's deployed and no one thinks that that person's going to be there for Christmas. Um, but, you know, the media kind of gets into it and they'll film it. And like the people inside the house, a lot of people don't know what's going to happen. The doorbell rings and there she is, there he is. I, I, it gets me every year. I'll just go ahead and cry at that because it's a surprise. Somebody's there. It's that unexpected show up. We love that. You know, Christmas and surprise go together. But that's fitting because when you go back to the first Christmas, there are a lot of surprises in the story. In fact, let me just tell you how I came up with this series. Last summer, I was just kind of doodling in my home office, and I was just sort of writing some of the words from the Christmas narrative. Hey, when you've done 32 straight Christmas series, you're trying to figure out a new way and a fresh way to come at Christmas. And so I was just sort of doodling, writing words from the Christmas story, and all of a sudden I wrote down the word suddenly, you know, from that verse in Luke chapter 2 where the Bible says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host." And I looked at what I'd written, suddenly. I thought, surprise. But then as I began to think about it, I thought, you know what? This is not only a great Christmas series. It'd be a great series any time of the year because God has a way of coming into our world and saying, surprise. In fact, here's the deal. The Christmas story isn't just filled with surprises. It's nothing but surprises. I mean, when you read the Christmas story, it's just one surprise after another. Well, since we're going to have a talk about this today, and really over the next six weekends, let's take a few moments just to talk about the concept of surprise. Because, you know, it's one of those words that we have sort of baked into our culture. A lot of times we don't back away and look at it objectively and say, exactly what is it that we mean by surprise? It doesn't take long for you you and me to, to live life before we begin to make certain presumptions about life. We see things happen again and again. We see circumstances play out the same way time and time again. So what happens is we start presuming that life is going to go a particular way. And we have all kinds of expressions for it. We, we can say expect the expected. We can call it the law of averages. We can call it conventional wisdom. We even have an expression for it, don't we? We say it is what it is. By that we mean we have come to make certain expectations about life and we presume that those expectations will take place. But along comes a surprise. And therein lies the very definition of surprise. Surprise challenges the status quo. It challenges the norm. It challenges the law of averages. 
Something happens that rewrites the story. That is the very nature of surprise. And like I said a few moments ago, as I prepped for this series, I came to realize that the Christmas story isn't just a story of surprise. It isn't just that it's filled with surprises. It's nothing but surprises. Now that we know what surprise means, let's, let's, let's step back a moment. What's the point of all the surprises in the Christmas story? It's God's way of saying, it's not what you thought it was. The world doesn't work the way you thought it did. The, the world is not happening the way you think it's going to happen. God comes along and says, surprise. And he challenges the status quo with the coming of Jesus. Well, we've talked about surprise. Let's talk about Christmas for a moment. What's Christmas about? Now, if, if I'd been speaking 80 years ago, I wouldn't need to ask this question, at least in America. We would have all known that Christmas was about the birth of Jesus. But man, in 2017, it's not that way anymore. You know, there, there's a whole push to de-Christ Christmas. There's a push to take Jesus out of Christmas. In fact, in a lot of our public settings, the idea is that we can't like sing carols that have to do with the spiritual. Now, for those of you who are younger, I need to let you know that there isn't any change in the Constitution. There's just a change in the winds that are blowing in our country. Hey, when I was junior in high school in Texas, I was taking German. Um, we went around in, in my high school of 4,000 students and caroled the whole school in German carols. And so consequently, that change that's taken place is fairly recent. But there's the idea that we just don't want to put anything that's the spiritual in the, um, in the Christmas story. In fact, I'm, not, I'm trying to try hard not to name the catalog, but my wife loves these places where you show a shop and you get stuff for the house, you know, and and, and there's a particular catalog that comes out every Christmas with the items that you can put in your house to decorate. And everything in that catalog is Christmas. I was looking through that catalog, and, and it was filled with ornaments of every kind. But there wasn't a single ornament that had anything to do with Jesus. There was no stable, no angels, no shepherds, no stable, no manger and there were all kinds of ornaments. There were ornaments for your favorite sport. There were ornaments for your favorite football team. There were actually ornaments for Las Vegas in there, but not a single ornament about Jesus. That begs a question for me. What is Christmas about? Have you, have you ever thought about the fact that Christmas is the only holiday that has a season? You know, there's not a New Year's season. New Year's comes, it goes. There's not a Fourth of July season. It comes, it goes. Hey, we're celebrating Thanksgiving this week. I love Thanksgiving, but there's not a Thanksgiving season. It comes, it goes. But there is a Christmas season, a whole season associated with a holiday. I don't know exactly when Christmas season starts. It used to start the day after Thanksgiving. Now, when I shop, I think it must start sometime in late May. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but there's a, right, there's a Christmas season. There's a whole genre of music, Christmas music. And there's not Fourth of July music. We have patriotic music, and not, not just associated with the holiday, but there's a whole genre of music. And practically every artist out there has a Christmas project. A lot of artists have several Christmas projects. Hey, when I, when I go out and listen to serious, you know, satellite music in my, in my car, I think there are like four or five Christmas channels. Or you can listen to all kinds of Christmas music. So that's pretty strange, isn't it? I mean, it's a holiday that has its own season, has its own genre of music. And beyond that, many of us will spend thousands of dollars buying gifts for people because it's Christmas. Well, here's my question. If you take Jesus out of that, 
what exactly are we celebrating? What's it, what's it about? Well, I have secular friends who say, well, it's, you know, it's the winter solstice. The days are going to be longer. Cool. I love that. But I don't think it's going to cause me to go out and spend thousands of dollars of gifts because the days are getting longer. Yeah, you know, we have a, we have a little cognitive dissonance going on in our culture here today. Well, just so that you'll understand where I'm coming from, and I don't get off into the political stuff, and I'm not going on a campaign to put Christ back in Christmas. That's, that's for another, another, another group. But I am saying this. I do believe in celebrating Christmas. And I'll tell you, I celebrate it with the pedal all the way to the floor. And I love the music, and I love the lights, and I love buying gifts because the underlying story of Christmas is big enough to deserve that kind of celebration. If you want to know why Christmas is important, let me give you two powerful words. Just chew on these for a moment. The words must and can't. I really believe you need those two words to understand Christmas. Must and can't. Let me talk about that first one. Must. If you want a relationship with God, if you want to go to heaven when you die, you must be perfect. That's what the Bible teaches So in other words, if on your own record, if on your own merit, you want to get into heaven, that's all you have to do is you must, not should be, not with certain exclusions or exceptions, not if you join a particular religion, scrap all that. You must be perfect. And now you can see the other word coming into view, right? Because although I must be perfect, I can't be perfect. I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. So what am I going to do? If I must be perfect in order to be, you know, God's child, and if I must be perfect to go to heaven, how am I going to do that when I can't be perfect? The answer. This is why the lights, the presence, the music, the season, everything. I need somebody who can do what I must do. I need somebody who can do for me what I can't do. So if you want to understand Christmas, it all revolves around those words must and can't. You need somebody to pinch hit for you. You need somebody to pinch run. You need somebody to stand in the batter's box in your place and do what you can't do. Enter Jesus Christ. I mean, a lot of people have the whole deal with the virgin birth and say, well, I just don't think that's biologically possible. Well, first, People got here with no human parents. But having said that, it was just God doing it his way. And here's what you have to understand. When Jesus came into our world, he had to be as human as you and I are and God at the same time. So he had Mary as his mother. He had God as his father. I don't understand the biology of that. We'll understand when we get to heaven if we still care. But what's cool is Jesus came into our world and he did do what we must do and he did do what we can't do. He ran the table for 33 years, never did one thing wrong, then took that perfect life and laid it on a Roman cross and paid for every sin that you and I have ever committed or ever will commit. In fact, this is what the Bible teaches. When Jesus died for our sins, there was this marvelous trade that took place. It was as if, in fact, let me scrap that. It was 
Our sins were clicked and dragged to Jesus Christ. His righteousness, therefore, is clicked and dragged to us so that when God looks at your and my record, he sees the perfect record of Jesus Christ. And because of that, I can have a relationship with God. I can go to heaven when I die because Jesus came into the world. And because of that, light the lights, play the music, turn it up loud, celebrate with everything you've got because we have good news today. That's the story of Christmas. Well, first day of the series is today. Surprise. It's not too late. That's our message today. You know, when some, have you ever been too late for something? I guess we all have, haven't we? Kind of a sick feeling, isn't it? You know, you find out there was an op- opportunity, and you, you discover that, wow, if you'd been there yesterday, you'd have had it, but you're too late. And we all have our stories, and some of them are quite painful. I mean, I have people who tell me, hey, Mark, I wish I'd tried harder in my first marriage, but now it's too late because she's remarried and I'm remarried, and we all have stories like that. Well, you know, I, I should have tried harder in college. Um, you know, since I was borrowing money, I probably should have gone to class. Um, good advice. Or I wish I'd taken a different subject in college, but it's too late now. All of us have the too late stories. And, and the too late Thing gives us this feeling of, and maybe this is the best way of saying it. I think about what I'm too late for, and I think my dream has died, but I'll keep going. I keep living. See, that's one of the tough things about being too late, isn't it? Something is no longer available to you, but you keep living. Well, today, I want to just talk to you about the reality, the surprise of Christmas is, about the thing that's most important in your life and my life, it's not too late. Okay, let's unpack the Christmas story. Somebody might say, well, Mark, I think we're starting the Christmas series a little early because uh, this is the week before Thanksgiving. Well, you need to understand that when you unpack the Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke, it actually starts 15 months before Jesus is born. So I guess I'm not too early, right? And you know, the story of Christmas, if you read it in the Gospel of Luke, it, it tells us about two babies. We all know who that second baby is. That's Jesus. But there's a first baby that comes. And it's that baby I want to talk about today. And I want to talk about his parents. Let's read about them. This is in, uh, oh, by the way, before I do that, let me just sort of tell you what this, what, what's, what this person is about. In the Old Testament prophets, the Bible forecast that this baby was going to be born and this baby was going to grow up to have a specific mission. In Malachi chapter 3, the Bible says, look, I'm sending my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. The most famous verse is in Isaiah. It says, a voice of one calling in the desert place, prepare So this person was going to be an advanced person for the Messiah. So that's who we're talking about, okay? Now, the story of Christmas begins with the boy's parents. And this is in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes. Well, a little more. Zechariah was a priest, and he is, as this story unfolds, about to have the opportunity of his lifetime. Priests really only had one chance to do this in their lifetime, of actually going into the actual temple and burning incense. So Zechariah is about ready to get his opportunity to do this once-in-a-lifetime thing, okay? Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old, okay? You know what you can do? You can take the words too late and stamp them on that verse, can't you? Zechariah and Elizabeth, everybody's like... What a sweet couple. We love them. They love children. It isn't too bad. They never were able to have children of their own. But they're old now. They, that, it's too late. Okay? Zechariah now going into the temple. And then 
unannounced, surprise, an angel of God appeared just to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was paralyzed in fear, but the angel reassured him, don't fear, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Elizabeth, your wife, will bear a son by you. You are to name him John. We, we know him as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He will herald God's arrival in the style and strength of Elijah, soften the hearts of parents to children, and kindle devout understanding among hardened skeptics. He'll get the people ready for God. This is Zechariah's cue to say, awesome. I thought I was too old. But you know what? That too late feeling, it gets pretty deep in our fabric, doesn't it? So you know what Zechariah's going to tell the angel? Well, let's read. Zechariah said to the angel, you expect me to believe this? I'm an old man. Now, he was okay saying that. But he goes on to say, and yeah, my wife is an old woman. She's not have said that. <laughs> you think he'd have said that if he'd known it's going to be in the Bible? That's right. You know, the Bible says that God's word lasts forever. So that means even in heaven we'll have it. So all throughout heaven, Elizabeth's going to be jabbing Zechariah like some of you wives jab your husbands at New Spring. She's going to be jabbing her husband saying, you said I was an old woman. For eternity, people are going to think about that. Now, I love this. Gabriel doesn't explain to Zechariah that it's not too late. He just gives him his business card. Look at this. The angel said, I'm Gabriel, the sentinel of God, sent especially to bring you this good news. But because you won't believe me, you'll be unable to say a word until the day of your son's birth. Every word I've spoken to you will come true on time, God's time. Meanwhile, the congregation was waiting for Zechariah and getting restless, wondering what was keeping him so long in the sanctuary. When he came out and couldn't speak, they knew he had seen a vision. He continued speechless, and I love this, had to use sign language. I hope God kept this on videotape because I want to watch this when I get to heaven. Zechariah's coming out. How does he explain to the crowd that he's seen an angel? We need to burn incense. Angel came. <laughs> yeah, but that's not the one I want to see. I want to see him try to explain it to his wife. You know, <laughs> angel came. Yeah, I'd like to see that. A lot of surprises there, weren't there? I mean, Zechariah got surprised. The people got surprised. Elizabeth got surprised. And you know what the surprise was? It's not too late. And they thought something would never happen in their lives. And they found out it's not too late. Well, one thing I always do at New Spring, and I hope, I hope that's been your experience here just sort of feeling where I'm coming from, I always try to be academically honest with you. I don't, I don't want to blow sunshine at people when it's not really there. There are things in life that you and I are too late for, no doubt about it. But here's the thing, the most important thing in your life, you're not too late for. Well, what is that? And I grew up in a traditional church and we used to use a term called God's will, but just backing away and looking at looking at it in objective terms. Here's what it means. It means the God who created you knows you and has gifted you with certain gifts and abilities, and he has tasked you with changing the world with the power that he will give you. So consequently, there is a mission for you to accomplish on this planet. And what I have the wonderful news of telling you today is Zechariah and Elizabeth discovered, it's not too late for you to get engaged in God's plan for your life. And I want to just take a few moments and give you five aspects of this, and then we'll, we'll leave here, okay? 
Here's the first thing I want you to see. It's not too late when people think it's too late. Have you, have you discovered that people will evaluate you based on their time frame? I mean, people have a clock for you, don't they? They have a calendar for you. And, and they, will, they, they will look at you and evaluate you as a person based on their calendar for your life. I mean, certain things are expected of you when you're 12, when you're 18, when you're 25, when you're 35, when you're 50, when you're 70. People look at you and size you up and they evaluate you based on their, their calendar. Who am I talking to that that's brought a lot of pain to you? Because maybe your mother said, I expected you to do more by this age. You know, people, I expected more of you. Or I expected something different of you. Have you ever noticed in the Bible how many people didn't achieve their destiny until far later than we would have thought possible? Hey, you know what? You can't get people of world religions to agree on much of anything. But there's one thing I think practically all world religions and even secular types will agree on. And that is, who is the greatest leader of the Old Testament era? I think everybody would agree it's Moses. I mean, Moses is an extraordinary leader. Do, do, do you realize that Moses never started leading until he was 80? He blew up the first 40 years of his life living as a crown prince, driving the Bentleys and running around and living the nightlife. He lived the next 40 years of his life thinking he was a total screw up and a failure and he was waiting to die. The third 40 years of his life when he turned 80 was when he became the world's greatest leader in history. Think about Abraham and Sarah, Joshua. Just, just call, the, call the role of people, men and women in the Bible, who never lived out their destiny until they were way past the point that most people would have thought it was available. Maybe that's because God doesn't look at time like we do. You know, I, when your pastor is ADD and you guys know me, when I'm getting ready for a sermon, there's a lot of times I just get interested in something. It'll never make the sermon. I just get interested in it. And, and getting ready for this message, I thought, well, I'm just going to look up as many definitions from the world of physics as I can find on the, word of, on the subject of time. Hey, do that sometime for fun. Just look at all the definitions for time from physics. And notice this. In almost every case, they can't define time without using time as a concept. Well, this is something that you and I need to understand. The reason why God doesn't look at time the way you and I look at time is that God is outside of time. You know, one of the, oftentimes people will ask me a time question about God. When did God begin? Who made God? And what they fail to understand is that eternity is the norm and time is the aberration. But I want you to look at something. This is in the book of Isaiah. And there's a statement about God. It says, the high and lofty one who lives in eternity. Interesting statement, right? The Bible is saying God is outside of time and he lives in eternity. The Holy One says this, I live in the high and holy place with those. Who does God live with? Who does God hang with? Let's read on. With those whose spirits are contrite and humble, I restore, and I had this word highlighted for you, the crushed. Okay, you guys have taken grammar. What does the ED mean at the end of crush? It's in the what? That you guys are sharp, past tense. Don't you find that significant? God is saying, I am the God who lives in eternity. I live outside of time. Who do I hang with? I hang with the people who are crushed. They've gone through tough stuff in their past, and other people have said, hey, they're not going to make it, and they're never going to do anything, and they didn't live up to what I expected according to my calendar, my clock, and God is like, I'm not worried about that. I live in eternity, and I hang with those people who have been crushed. 
Yeah. God just doesn't look at time the way we do. So I have good news for you today. When it comes to doing what you were put on the planet to do, it's not too late for you, even if people think it's too late for you because you're not working on their calendar. You're living and working with and hanging with the God who lives outside of time. All right, let's go to this next one. It's not too late when you make a wrong move. I say this today. I know a lot of you at New Spring are pretty young, but there's some here who are like 25 or 30 or beyond that. And it's like, well, Mark, I could have I lived up to God's plan in my life if I hadn't taken a wrong turn. God tried to get my attention. I went a different direction. I love this. I love my job, but I, I love moments like this when I get to tell you, even if you've made a wrong turn and a few other wrong turns, God is the ultimate recalculating agent. He is so wonderful that if you will come to him today and say, God, I made some wrong turns, and God will say, well, okay, we'll go from here. Look at this. Um, in the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verse 1, there's an interesting statement. Let me tell you the story in case it may be fresh to you. Uh, Jonah was a preacher, and, and God said to him, I want you to go to a really difficult place. Nineveh, they were like a terror. I mean, they were just the worst people that you and I can imagine. And so Jonah, he not only didn't want to preach to them, he didn't even want them to have a relationship with God. He was glad to let them die and be judged. So when God said, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach, he got a ticket for Spain, which was as far in the opposite direction as he could go. Then he got the storm, and then, you know, he told everybody on board the ship, hey, before the ship sinks, you better throw me overboard because I'm the reason for the storm. And so Jonah expects to die. He's thrown overboard, and then he gets swallowed by some kind of sea animal, and then three days later, the sea animal deposits him on the beach by Nineveh. Now, you would think that God would be finished with Jonah, but in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, there's one of the greatest statements in the Bible. Look at this. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Isn't it good that even if we've disobeyed God's word, that he will come back to us a second time, and in my case, a third time, and a fourth time, and a 7,000th time, and a 25,000th time. It's not too late if you've taken a wrong turn. Oh, let's go a little deeper. It's not too late if you've done wrong. Is it just me? Or don't you wish that some of the people in Washington, D.C. and Hollywood and some of these, don't you just wish that there were people who could say, I really did something wrong? I mean, we live in a world where it's like parsed and they have professional statements come out and everything. Don't you just wish people could say, I did wrong. I did something wicked. I mean, I really think we could handle it a lot better than that. But it, honestly, it's, isn't it tough to like own up to the fact that you and I have done something wrong and oftentimes when we do something wrong, we wind up hurting somebody else. Now, the reason I go here today is because many of us have done things that are wrong, we think, okay, God can't, he can't do anything with me. <laughs> this is a simple story. When I think about doing something wrong and realizing what we've done, I, I remember being about 11 years old. And in those days... Um, I had a bicycle, which was my favorite possession. I had this bicycle, and it's you got to be over 55 to understand this, at least. It was like a stingray bicycle with high hand, raised handlebars, you know, and a banana seat. You just had to be there in the late 60s, early 70s. And so, but I, in those days, we, had a, we didn't have a lot of land, but we had a little place there in southeast Fort Worth. 
And there was a fence that separated the front yard from the backyard on the side of the house. And so what I loved to do was ride my bike toward that fence, toward that gate as fast as I possibly could and then throw on the brakes and skid and just stop short of that, that gate. And my dad would say to me, Mark, don't do that. You're going to hit the gate. I'd say, no, nah, I'm not going to hit the gate. I've never hit it. I know what I'm doing. Well, one day, I mean, I just sped up to that gate as fast as I could, hit my brakes, and unfortunately, I went a little too far. And it didn't, my bike didn't hit the gate hard. It just bumped it. Worst possible day to do that. I had two of my young cousins over at my house, and I had a cousin who was about six, and I didn't realize he was standing right by that gate, and the bolt came forward and cut him right, right here. Now, my dad passed in 2013, and we had a service for him in South Texas. And my cousin was there, and I haven't seen him in 35 years. And he was at the funeral, and we hugged, and we were talking for a few minutes. And I looked at him, and I saw a little scar right here. And I thought, I did that. It's kind of a lousy feeling. Now, that's a simple story, but a lot of us have a lot more painful stories, don't we? I mean, what if we do really wrong? I mean, somebody could be here saying, Mark, appreciate you saying this. There are people here today that can probably use this, but you don't know what's in my background, and you don't know what I've done. And my gut feeling is that most of us are sitting out there thinking that at some level because we know everything bad about us. But what does God have to say about this? I mean, look at Joel chapter 2. The Bible says, first of all, it isn't too late. Wow, could we just all take a deep breath there? It isn't too late. Even now, those are two of my favorite words in the Bible. God is saying to the people, I know you're really screwed up, and I know you're really messed up, and know you've done a lot of things that are really wrong, and there would have been a way better time for you to respond to me, but God is saying, even now, even, I love those two words, even now, return to me with all your heart. Joel 2.13, return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love, and look at this marvelous line. He is eager to relent and not punish. For all of us who think that God is the cosmic killjoy in the sky with a hammer waiting to bash people who've done wrong, could we just like embrace this and let it settle on us like gentle rain? He is eager to relent and not punish. God didn't like to punish. He loves to relent. And so could I tell you, it's not too late, even if you've done wrong. Well, in our Western world today, and especially in the United States, we tend to look at death like the finish line. And your opportunity to live is before you die. And when people die, we talk about them in the past tense. It's a huge mistake. Because not even death runs the clock to zeros. I have a couple of dear friends here today. And they're from First Church in Woodstock, Georgia. It's part of Atlanta. It's a great church. You guys know my best friend is Johnny Hunt. He's a pastor there. Johnny's preached for us. And uh, one of my friends, you already know, Marty Benton. Um, we've raised a lot of money for Bibles for the Muslim world, and you guys know that. Marty heads up that ministry, and he's, spoke, he's been here before and been on stage with me. So you know Marty Benton, and we're delighted to have him today. But I also have another friend here for the first time. His name is Bobby Harris. Bobby and I, we've been dear friends. And so, can I just tell you a little bit about kind of how we got to know each other? Um, my dad died in 2013. 
And I was scheduled to preach at Woodstock in the summer, in July. And I've been on this calendar for almost a year. And I had thought, as my dad was coming close to the end, I thought he was going to live for a couple more months. So I told Johnny, I said, well, I'm going to be fine. And um, I thought I had plenty of time. But my dad wound up dying the Tuesday before I was supposed to be at Woodstock. Now, you guys know my dad if you were here in the day. My dad pastored for 50 years his church and was our care pastor for 13 years. And I knew my dad would say, hey, if you're scheduled to preach somewhere, you show up and preach. So I had worked it out where we would have the service here on Friday and then we'd have the service in South Texas on Monday. And then I would fly to Atlanta to preach in the Sunday in between. So I preached dad's funeral here on Friday morning and Friday afternoon I'm at the airport getting ready to fly out to Atlanta, and I'm exhausted. I had a real sense that God wanted me to bring a sermon on Jeremiah 29, 11, but I hadn't preached that sermon in five years, and I had thought, looking up to that date, I was going to have plenty of time to work on the sermon, but I'd been so busy the week that my dad died, I really didn't have any time to work on it. So I thought, well, at least when I get to Atlanta, I'll have Saturday morning to work on the message. And um, I was staying with Austin's mom and dad, and they have a little sunroom in the back of their house, and I just unfolded all my notes when I got a call from Marty Benton. And Marty said, Mark, I know you've had a really rough week, but he said, we got a situation here at the church, and he began to tell me about a young man named David who was in his late 20s who was having a real severe reaction. And he said, we had thought he's getting better, but we don't think he's going to make it. And is there, our pastor's not here. Is there any way that you can come and minister to this family? So I just sort of put all my notes down and drove over to Woodstock, picked up Marty, and on the way to the hospital, he's kind of telling me the story even further. He said, uh, with this reaction, David was getting a lot better, and, and he had hopes of getting out of the hospital and being at church this Sunday to rededicate his life. And at Woodstock, at the end of the service, they have invitation, and if a person wants to make a decision, they can come forward and make it. And to rededicate one's life means that you're just wanting a fresh start with God. And that's a great thing for all of us. And so David was so excited about getting out of the hospital, being in the Sunday service, and rededicating his life. And Marty said, unfortunately, his organs are shutting down. And he's definitely not going to be able to get out of the hospital. We don't think he's going to make it. And we need you to kind of tell him that. So when I got into the hospital, there were a lot of people from the church in the waiting room. And we were shuttled back to the intensive care unit and... And when I was there, I remember when we got into the room, David was in the bed in front of me, and, and Marty, Marty Benton was over to my left, and David's mom was across from me, and David's dad, Bobby, was over here. And we were standing there, and I remember reaching down and, and taking David's hand. And I said, David, my name is Mark Hoover, and I'm the pastor that's going to be preaching at your church tomorrow. And David, you, you're not going to be able to get out of the hospital. But I said, when I get through preaching tomorrow, I'm going to give an invitation. And I think I said to him something like this. You know, David, you could be the first person to respond to the invitation. If you'd like to rededicate your life, I'll, I'll lead you in a prayer right now. And he said he would. So I held his hand and I led him in a prayer of rededication, rededication like I pray the prayer of salvation with you each week. And I put his hand down. And a second later, he, he reached up like this. And David's mom said, David, what are you doing? He said, Jesus is waiting for me with open arms. 
His mom said, David, do you see Jesus? He said, I see Jesus. Well, Marty and I had to leave because hospice was coming in, but what we didn't know was that was pretty much going to be it. David was going to slip out and be with God. I mean, it's a joy to have Bobby with us today because I don't think any of us in that room will ever forget that moment when David said, Jesus is waiting for me with open arms. Do you understand that when death comes, because Jesus came into our world, that the clock doesn't go to zeros. It's just the starting point. It's just when we begin to live. I mean, we could look at that from the outside, and I do look at it from the outside and say, what a tragedy that such an enormously fine young man didn't live out his life down here. But hey, well, you know, even if life ends at 25 or 50 or 80, I mean, what's that to living forever? Because the Bible says when Jesus came into our world, he conquered death. Let me read this for you. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free who have lived their lives Slaves to the fear of dying. Hey, isn't that great? That even when death comes, it's still not too late. In fact, if anything, we just begin to live. Well, let me close with this. Here's number five. It's not too late to experience God's surprising grace. Do you remember at the beginning of the talk, I said if you want to have a relationship with God, if you want to go to heaven, you have to be perfect. Well, we've already seen that we can't be perfect, but that's okay because God sent someone, someone into the world who could do what we couldn't do. What if you want to get in on that? What if today you say, I, I want to know that I'm forgiven. I want to know that I have everlasting life. I want to know that when I come to that place where David was, Jesus will be waiting for me with open arms. Well, right now, God has a deal on the table. And the deal is this, it's a gift. Don't you love that? In Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible says, it is, by, it is the grace of God, not by works. And it says, it's not of works so that it is the gift of God. God wants to give you everlasting life. But somebody could say, well, it's too late for me. Yeah, man, I'm, maybe if I hadn't done the stuff I did, if I hadn't done what I did last night, it's too late for me. I was reading in Scripture one day and just thought, is there any place in the Bible, think about this, is there any place in the Bible where someone asked to be forgiven and God said no? Interesting question, right? Is there, is there any place where anybody, regardless of what he or she had done wrong, is there a single place where somebody came to God and said, I am sorry and I don't want to go that way anymore. Would you forgive me? Is there a single place where God came along and said, no, it's too late. If you come yesterday, fine, but it's too late. You know what? You won't find it. You won't find a single person who came to God and said, I'm sorry and I want to be forgiven. And God said, it's too late. In fact, we have an ideal template to understand it in a particular story. You remember there was a thief hanging beside Jesus? He has nothing to offer God. He's going to die before sundown. He has no life left. I mean, he, on top of that, he's been a thief and a murderer and a terrorist. And if there was anybody that Jesus would say, I'm sorry, it's too late, he would have said it to the thief on the cross. But what did he say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. 
Now, here's the strange thing. This and I'm finished. Although I can tell you today is just fine, I can't tell you tomorrow will be. I would throw that caveat in. I know you can come today, but I don't know if you can come tomorrow. Let me show you what the Bible says. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, the Bible says, Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. You know you have today. It's not too late if you're breathing. You've got today. If you decide, I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. I want my life to turn around. I do not want to be the person I've been. I want to be the person that God has destined me to be. All it takes is for you to just simply ask. I'm not asking you to join a church or join a religion or make commitments or promises. I'm just simply asking you to come by faith to the one who came into this world, who makes the lights worth turning on, and come to him and ask to be forgiven. Hey, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll lead you in a prayer right now. These aren't magic words. These are just words that call out to God. And if you want to say them with me, you can. You can say them, you can say them silently. God, God hears you. And I'll say them slowly because you can decide whether you want to say these things to God or not. Okay? Would you pray with me? Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I'm broken, and I can't fix myself. But I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. And I believe, God, that you raised him from the dead. I ask you to forgive me. Help me turn from my old life. And help me follow you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I know we're crowded. We always are on Sundays, but let me, let me ask you to do something. I have a gift I want to give you. If you just prayed to receive Christ with me, here's what you need to do. Just take a talk to us card from the back of the seat or when you got one coming in, and just go to any info center and say, I prayed with Mark, and there's a gift for you. They won't ask you, your, you know, for your information, your routing number, anything like that. They just want to give this to you. It's a Bible just like I preach from. It's got a DVD that answers questions and a book I wrote, and your pastor has ADD, so people with ADD don't write long books, but it's just answering questions. And just go back and say, I pray with Mark. That's all you have to say. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you next weekend.